And it's it's extremely difficult to get over certain plateaus in yeah. language learning if you don't have some guidance from someone who says, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I understand you, but do you want to say it more elegantly and mm-hmm. elo- you know do you want to make it clearer do you want to make it um, more interesting can we can we work on on your delivery what do you want to accomplish can you make it do you want to make it better and yeah. how do you want to make it better you're listening to speaking of language a podcast recorded at the language resource center at cornell university i'm dan gable technology manager for the lrc each week we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition this week on Speaking of Language. Patsy Lightbound, Distinguished Professor Emerita in Applied Linguistics at Concordia University, joins our podcast to discuss form-focused instruction and the balance between form-focused and meaning-focused learning activities. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the Director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I am delighted to have Patsy Lightbound with me in the studio today. Dr. Lightbound is Distinguished Professor Emerita at Concordia University and is at Cornell as part of our LRC speaker series. She gave a talk last week titled, Putting Form-Focused Instruction in Its Place, and we will extend our conversations about form and meaning-focused instruction on our podcast. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Patsy. Thank you. Delighted to be here for the first time at Cornell. Oh, what do you think so far? It's cooler than it is back home. <laughs> <laughs> cooler, you mean in terms of temperature, right? That's what I, that ah, was the okay, reference, bummer. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but beautiful, right? Beautiful, very beautiful. Excellent. Glad to be here. <laughs> so can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background, your interests in research and teaching? Well, I became involved in research um, mostly because the students I was teaching when I was at Concordia were themselves teachers of English mm-hmm. uh, to francophone students in Quebec. Yeah. Uh, so up to that point, I had been interested in language acquisition, mostly in the context of young learners, mm-hmm. uh, children who were becoming bilingual either before school or in early school years. And although I had been a high school teacher of French in an earlier incarnation, yeah. um, my interest and my focus had shifted to this early bilingualism um, phenomenon until I met my first group of students who were themselves teachers or be teachers to be. Mm-hmm. And for them, the the findings of research on early childhood bilingualism were interesting because yeah. many of them had children who were becoming bilingual at home, sure. but they couldn't quite see the relevance of that to what was going on in their classrooms. Mm, yeah. And so um, my colleagues and I decided that there was only one cure for that, and that was to get into the classrooms and see what was happening. Uh-huh. So starting in the 1970s, um, we spent a lot of time sitting in the classrooms, observing, because uh, for me, and I'm thinking probably for you too, uh, any research project about language learning starts with a period of observation, mm-hmm. just what's going yeah. on, um, how can we describe it, what are, the, what are the things that people are happy about, not happy about, yeah. uh, what are the outcomes, what are the results that they are getting, and what results are they not getting. Mm-hmm. So that was how it started, and um, it, by the late 70s, uh, my good friend and colleague Nina Spada was my graduate student, mm-hmm. and she and I became a kind of team yeah. uh, together with some other uh, colleagues and students, um, and we spent a lot of time observing and then gradually developed 
some interventions in order to test out some ideas. Mm-hmm. On the basis of the observations, we would see certain things happening. I mean, those early observations took place in classrooms that were essentially audiolingual in their design. Yeah. And so we, we could actually have students who had spent several years in instruction learning English in a classroom every day for several years, at the end of which period they could not answer questions uh-huh. like, um, how do you feel about something or mm-hmm. what do you think? And nor could they even say things like, I don't understand or would you say that again? Yeah. Because everything had been focused on those prepackaged mm-hmm. dialogues mm-hmm. and drills and and anything that was um, important to be said, any any meaningful interaction between the students and the teacher switched right back to French. Yeah. Um, and so we realized that um, things were the, the change was needed. Fortunately, mm-hmm. the Ministry of Education had figured that out, too. So <laughs> we were able to work very closely with the Ministry of Education over the next few years as they began to reshape yeah. the kind of instruction that they wanted to uh, implement in the mm-hmm. classrooms. And then, of course, we got that famous language teaching phenomenon, which was if if memorizing dialogues and doing pattern drills was not a perfect way of teaching language, mm-hmm. then you should get rid of absolutely all such activity and replace it with <laughs> entirely um, communicative, in quotation marks, yep. um, <laughs> language teaching and never teach any drill, never have any drills or yeah. patterns or grammar lessons, but just talk and be, you know, have fun. Yeah. So it's from that experience of, of sort of seeing the evolution of um, language teaching right there in in the province of Quebec where we spent many, many, many classroom hours mm-hmm. that we kind of developed our ideas of the the need for a balance between language-focused instruction and meaning-focused instruction, form-focused and meaning-focused, mm-hmm. um, both essential components of language learning um, and just looking for how to find the role of each one mm-hmm. and so that each one does what it's supposed to do, yeah. um, but also is complemented by what the other one can do. Yeah. So is there a quick solution to uh, exactly what is the perfect balance between the two? Well, in the talk, um, one approach that I have found really useful, as you will have heard um, me elaborate, Mm -hmm. um, one approach that I have found really useful is the approach that um, builds on the work of Paul Nation, Mm -hmm. the four strands for language teaching. And I came upon this um, idea, his idea, mm, how long ago now? More than 10 years ago? No, 2007 was the mm-hmm. first publication I remember coming across. And he argued in that paper and has also um, followed up with that, that there really are four essential elements in every language teaching environment, every yeah. language learning environment. Uh, and I have found that a very um, clear and useful guideline for helping teachers to look at what they're doing in the classroom to uh, determine whether they're doing enough of each of these different elements. Mm-hmm. And the four elements are meaning-focused input, mm-hmm. meaning-focused output, yeah. language-focused learning, mm-hmm. and the fourth one that nobody ever can imagine. Once you've gone through those first three, they just scratch their heads and say, what else can there be? Yeah. Um, and the fourth one is fluency development, yeah. which... Um, contrary to what people assume, is is also a meaning-focused strand. Sure. So if you use 
um, nations, four strands, as the basis for thinking about this. Um, you've got three strands that are meaning-focused and mm-hmm. one that's language-focused or form-focused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, the crucial thing about the, that, that one strand is that whatever you do in that strand is done in service to the meaning-focused mm-hmm. strands. So you're not just randomly memorizing um, conjugations or, sure. or declensions. You're, you're doing something that will be practiced when you get into the meaning-focused activities. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, um, I mean, of course, Nation came to his a proposal for the four strands from his research on vocabulary learning, mm-hmm. but I find that it's very compatible with what I understand and what I have observed through my own research in other aspects of language learning as well, not just vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners who are in the classroom and they're trying to figure out exactly to find that perfect balance between um, focusing on form and focusing on meaning, does this language focus or focus on form mean that it's okay to explicitly teach grammar? Or do you think that the, this focus on language and form should be done implicitly? Well, You've asked me, so I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> and I am convinced that not only is it desirable for teachers sometimes to be very explicit mm-hmm. about what it is that students should be paying attention to in the language itself. Yeah. Um, not only is it desirable, it is in some situations absolutely necessary mm-hmm. because if you are using language only to exchange meaningful uh, uh, notions, mm-hmm. um, there's just so much that you won't get. It's, mm-hmm. There are certain features of language that are either so infrequent or so non-salient that th- through conversation, you, you, you almost literally can't grasp mm-hmm. them unless you're looking for them. Yeah. And the other side of that is that when people are engaged in, in meaningful activity, uh, their, their focus is on the meaning, mm-hmm. and it is extremely difficult to get them to focus on meaning and form at the same time. Yeah. So um, what happens is that meaning is almost always predominant. Mm-hmm. People focus on, on the meaning because that's what language means for them, me- is for them. Um, and so um, if, if what we want is for students to focus on the language itself, we have to let them know. Um, the, probably the best example of this uh, has come from the research on on feedback, mm-hmm. uh, recasts as feedback. Yeah. And depending on the kind of classroom you're in, uh, feedback that's delivered as a sort of conversational recast mm-hmm. where the student makes an error and the teacher smilingly repeats what the student had just said, only with the correct grammar or whatever, yeah. um, we find that in classrooms that are focused primarily on meaning, such as an immersion class or a, a content-based language class, the students don't understand that they that what's being responded to is the form. They mm-hmm. think that the mm-hmm. teacher is continuing mm-hmm. the meaningful conversation uh, in a classroom where everybody's there with the intention of learning the language and they're doing a lot of grammar exercises and a lot of uh, uh, focus explicitly on the language. Then, when the teacher recasts, the students are likely to realize that that's yeah. a that's a grammar correction or a vocabulary correction. Uh, so you have to look at the overall context. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, yes, it's it, it, it's not just desirable, but essential mm-hmm, for teachers mm-hmm. to say, whoa, I'm talking here yeah. about the language itself. I yep. understand what you're saying, but if you want to say it better, mm-hmm. this is what you need to yeah. do. So speaking of context, does it make a difference how old the students are? Is there a different approach in, in how you would um, differentiate between form and meaning-focused meaning teaching in a K-12 setting as opposed to post-secondary? I think that there's a difference in terms of age. Yes, I think um, 
for one thing, you can't expect children, you know, under the age of eight or nine to have much metalinguistic sure. knowledge. Nope. So there's no great value in talking to them about nouns and verbs. Um, they're not going to do too much with that. But at the same time, you may have older learners, especially, say, in an adult education mm -hmm. context, who have never studied grammar as sure. such. And so for them, um, you may want to offer explicit instruction, but it may, may have to be couched in terms other than metalinguistic terms because mm -hmm. they may also not know. So there's age differences. There's educational experience differences. Mm -hmm, there's... Mm -hmm prior language learning experience, um, and then there's the goals. Uh, I always have to think of, of what, the, what the students of are course. after, what they want to achieve in the classroom. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, do you think, what, what is your opinion, can there be too much focus on form in a language classroom? Can that, can that hinder the path toward proficiency or whatever the goals are for a specific classroom? Can that take away from... You know, well, I've seen it. Goal? Yes, yes, I, I have to say yes to that question. <laughs> we've we've we have seen it in many contexts. Uh, again, to go back to uh, hmm. earlier approaches, oh. uh, I think I think it, uh, in many contexts this has diminished or disappeared. But certainly for many years, uh, that's what language learning was. It mm -hmm. was grammar translation. It was focused on the language as a system. Yep. Um, it was all about correct forms, correct conjugations, correct sentence writing, full sentences, and so forth. And in those contexts, uh, learners had very little opportunity to try to express themselves or to take risks or to say anything that was really meaningful mm -hmm. to them. Uh, so at the end of a, a course like that, students often had no um, ability to use the language. They simply they knew some things about the language, mm -hmm. but they really couldn't use it. Uh, in any context. Uh, I, I think that sort of thing is much rarer mm -hmm. now, yeah. but I don't think it's disappeared completely. I think we still find um, in many parts of the world an assumption that learning language means learning the grammar rules yeah. and doing exercises. Well, and a big part of that, I think, is to how people, the teachers themselves, have learned language, right? I mean, yes. I in, in, in my language learning path, that's in Latin. I, I drilled grammar. Sure. Um, I mean, sure. even learning, well, maybe not grammar, but learning English. I mean, even in, in learning German um, grammar, I remember underlining certain things and, sure. and going through sentences and dictation and right, literally focusing on form. And, and, and hooray, because look at what a good speaker of English <laughs> you are now. But uh, this is exactly the point that, yes, there can be too much, but there can also be too little. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. there is none then you are essentially leaving learners to fend for themselves mm -hmm. and and it's it's extremely difficult to to get over certain plateaus in yeah. language learning if you don't have some guidance from someone who says yeah that's that's great yeah i understand you but do you want to say it more elegantly and mm -hmm. you know do you want to mm -hmm. make it clearer do you want to make it um, more interesting can we can we work on on your delivery can mm -hmm. we work on your um, the, the the register that you're using let's can are the what what do you want to accomplish can you make it do you want to make it better and yeah. how do you want to make it yeah. better yeah sometimes what i also find interesting in in speaking with students either that i have taught that i am teaching or classes that i have observed um there are certain students who who want that structure who mm -hmm. want to understand well how does the language <clears throat> work mm -hmm. right what are the mm -hmm. grammatical features mm -hmm. Um, what advice would you give to teachers 
how how do they balance that? How do they find this this balance between form and meaning focused? Well, um, I, I think you're right to point out the different interests and backgrounds of students because mm -hmm. it will not be the answer will not be the same for every classroom for yeah. every student for every language for that matter that's, that's another true. fascinating phenomenon or for every element within a language there are some things that you just you'll get i mean krashen is right about that if mm -hmm. you if you understand what people are saying to you and you hear it enough you will grasp some aspects of the language and they will become part of your knowledge of yeah. the language um if on the other hand um Uh, there, there are, there are, on, there are, on the other hand, features of the language that you simply can't get from that kind of meaningful interaction, um, and so somebody has to guide you to find the things that you are missing. Emphasizing the fact that different students will benefit from different mm -hmm. kinds of mm -hmm. fo focus on form. So some students will absolutely benefit from being told about the rules of grammar. Mm -hmm. Some will not because they don't know, they've, they've never learned rules of grammar. They aren't aware of rules of grammar even based on their own language. And, and in those cases, the, the research suggests that they can benefit from learning about their own language in order to get mm -hmm. a better understanding of the target language. I sure. think most people yeah. know if they've ever extensively studied a foreign language that it's easier to talk about the rules in the foreign language than it is to talk about the rules mm -hmm. in the language you already speak because the, the, the so-called mother tongue, and there are many different ways of referring to the mother tongue, but the language or languages that you've learned from early childhood um, are languages that you acquired without explicit mm -hmm. instruction um, because you were exposed to those languages, that language or those languages for thousands of hours of yeah. meaningful interaction, um, and you, because you were a child. And although um, we have very good evidence that in classroom learning, younger children are not necessarily better learners, in natural environments with massive amounts of meaning-focused input, uh, children are terrific. Mm -hmm. They've got that ability to get the language yeah. from the implicit uh, learning. But uh, as we get older, we, we have less time. Mm -hmm. uh, we have um, developed uh, prejudices about what language does mm -hmm. and how it works. Uh, and we need to have uh, more guidance. Uh, and mm -hmm. we can benefit from that guidance, not necessarily metalinguistic uh, yeah. terminology, but, but, um, but information about how the language works that yeah. allows us to uh, get out of little little side paths that we get ourselves mm -hmm. into then, mm -hmm. and can't quite understand why it's not working. Yeah. So if I'm a fairly new language instructor, maybe a, a teaching assistant, and I have a, a textbook that I'm teaching with that's probably claiming to be communicative in approach and has these little grammar boxes, what would your advice be? Do I just go along with the syllabus that I have? Is there something else that I can do to help my students um, acquire the language maybe more effectively? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> That's a very big question. Yeah, I, I, I think it really is, um, there, there is no question about the fact that a new teacher who has not had a lot of experience will draw on really two sources of knowledge. One is the one that you mentioned, which is the way they were taught. Mm -hmm. The other is the textbook, the holy grail, of, you yeah. know, the, the, the textbook that they follow slavishly. Um, and, and it's really important for us to um, realize that I'm going to 
pause here because I, I did lose, but I want to come back. Okay, there's the, there's this, the, what we call the, um, the apprenticeship of observation, which is all those years that you spent in a classroom as a student. There's the textbook that you think tells you exactly what mm-hmm. to do. And the reason so many people stick to those two things is because of their own insecurity. Mm. So it's really important to help teachers develop self-confidence mm. and to believe. You know, um, one of my uh, mentors uh, in my doctoral program was uh, John Fanslow at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And Fanslow was a character, a true character. and. Some of the things that he did were quite uh, entertaining. And one of the things he used to say to teachers was, um, okay, um, you've been having students underline all the words they don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, next time, have them underline all the words they do know. Mm-hmm. Um, or he would say, um, okay, you've been teaching standing in front of the classroom. Go teach standing in the back of the classroom. Huh. Or you've been sitting down, now stand up. All these little things that he would say, try something different. Try it and see if it works. And he and I used to have these wonderful discussions where I was all about second language acquisition research and how important it was for teachers to understand something about the research. Mm -hmm. And he would say, no, just have them do something different. See how it works in in a kind of momentary experiment. Mm -hmm. Just try something different. He said, and I believe he's probably true, right, that teachers would start the year with a variety of activities and they mm-hmm. would do a bunch of different things and little by little over the year they would do fewer and fewer different things and you can say in a positive way that might be because they found what works mm-hmm. and they're doing more and more of that mm-hmm. good stuff but it could also be that they're just tired of trying to find you know they just sure. don't want to do so much preparation um, but I think he he would say and I would say that it's really really important to create a variety of activities in the classroom. There really have to be a lot of different things going on because you really don't know what's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I think that's, again, one of the one of the beauties that I see in the four strands approach mm-hmm. because within each strand, you, there are so many different kinds of things you could be doing. So if you think of it that way and you ask yourself today in my class, will my students get enough opportunity to just mm-hmm. understand from input today in my class will my students get enough opportunities to produce language um to to focus on the language itself and then to practice what they already know to develop fluency those four strands uh, if you if you look inside them and unpack each one uh, can give you some really good ideas Mm -hmm. about how to expand the kinds of things you do in the classroom absolutely wonderful well so basically what we're telling our our colleagues is to Remain flexible and be patient with themselves and mm-hmm. try something new, even if you are a seasoned um, lecturer here. Um, maybe think outside the box and try something new. Sounds like a good idea. I like it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Patsy, thank you so much for being on our show today, for being on campus as part of the LRC Speaker Series. It's been delightful to have you here. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Next week, we will look at national trends in language study in the U.S., My colleague Stefan Haritos will join me. Stefan is the director of the Language Resource Center at Columbia University, and we will discuss a few recent national surveys on language enrollments. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lupwitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lupwitz. 
Original music by Sam Lupwitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.